Well, good morning. My name is Lucas Aubrey. I work with the youth ministry across the street, so you might have seen my face there. Pretty recognizable, maybe. You might have also seen me at frequently, frequently going to the kettle. That's like my favorite place to go. Um, so if you've been there, I get the classic two burritos, coffee, and a water. So you might have seen my face. Or I don't know if this helps, but... Um, You've actually seen my face a lot. That, that's actually me. Um, this whole summer, I've been watching you um, learn about character studies. So I'm in the room every Sunday with you, if you didn't know that. Um, yeah, and I see you on your phones back there. Been watching. Um, but seriously, I'm so pumped to be here this morning. Like I said, my name is Lucas. Um, I work here full time with the youth ministry, and it is just an awesome opportunity to come in front of you guys, um, the leaders of this, um, of this city, the leaders of our campuses to come out. I'm just so pumped, and I'm excited to share with you what God has really been putting on my heart the past uh, couple months. And so this, this kind of talk is really going to be about um, what I've been wrestling with, and I'm just going to kind of let you in on what I've been going through in my life. Um, so I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump right into this. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful. We are so grateful to have the opportunity to come here um, and just to worship you for your goodness We see what's going on in the news, we see what's going on in the world, and that can kind of bog us down. But Lord, let us remember that we are in a place where we can worship and honor you and love you, for you are a good father. Father, I pray for this time that you would use me and my words would not be a distraction and let your truth ring. And all the hearts and the minds in this room to be molded and shaped by your spirit as it convicts and as it teaches and as it lifts up those in this room and even myself. Father, be with us in this time. We love you and we trust you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. So the question I have for you is, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? What am I doing here? Um, See, I find myself asking this question a lot in my life. Um, As I got older, I asked it even more and more of, Lucas, what are you doing here? I remember one of the first times I asked this question was when I was cramming for my psychology exam. Um, that's what I came to A&M for, to do psychology. I'm cramming for it and realizing I have failed test after test after test. I turned in labs that were wrong for some odd reason. And I was sitting there God, saying, God, what am I doing here? I hate psychology, right? I hate people coming up to me and saying, oh, you're a psychologist. What am I thinking? I'm like, I don't know, right? That's not my job right now. What am I doing here? I also remember asking that question as I sat in a McDonald's away from Baylor Hospital in downtown Dallas after my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer, alone, eating my comfort food, which is McDonald's, I admit it. Um, And as I took a bite of that juicy cheeseburger and sipped of that Dr. Pepper, I sat there alone and frustrated going, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? Why is this happening, God? What's going on? I also remember asking that question when I came to Grace. You see, um, I took a victory lap at A&M. So any of y'all taking a victory lap? I'm with you. Stay strong, right? Um, My junior year, I wanted to get the heck out of College Station. I'm like, I'm getting out of here, right? Because I'm tired. Uh, But then I took a senior year. 
And then I took another senior year. Um, and then I thought I was going to get out. And then I decided, you know what? I, I feel like the Lord is moving me um, to come work here at Grace. So I did the fellows program for a year, right? It was actually like an internship back then, but now they call it the fellows, right? Um, and then I decided to sign up and say, hey, we want you to stay for another three years, Lucas. So would you commit to being with the youth ministry for another three years? And I said, you know what? Why not? But then I thought about it. And I was like, wait a minute, another three years here? And as I poured my life out for those kids across the street, and as I'm day in, day out, spending my gas money on them, because junior high kids can't drive, right? Spending my money for their food, wasting, or not wasting, but pouring out my time. Yeah, not wasting my time, forgive me. Um, pouring out my time for those students, pouring out my energy, my emotion for those students. I saw a little fruit when I first started here. So I sat at my desk and just wondered, what am I doing here? God, why am I here? You see, you've probably asked that question too. Um, I don't know, I might be able to poll the audience and you could probably raise your hand and say, yeah, I wasn't expecting to be in College Station this whole summer. Some of you might've thought that. Um, and you've probably asked that question this week or this summer saying like, what, what am I doing here? I'm flipping open my Instagram feed, my Facebook posts, and I'm seeing my friends and my family. They're going on vacations. They're going on mission trips. They're doing incredible things. They're actually just resting, but I'm here stuck in College Station cramming over a finance exam. What am I doing here? Or maybe you've asked that question in the fall of, man, I want to join this organization or I want to get in this relationship. So I need to say the right things. I need to do the right things. I need to go buy this dress, buy this suit so I look more professional so that I can increase in my chances of getting in. And door after door after door after breakup after miscommunications happen. And you sit there at a coffee shop. You sit there in your room. You might be even sitting there this morning going, what am I doing here? I think the reason why we ask that is because we have expectations in our lives that don't get met all the time. We have these preconceived notions that we set this wonderful um, scenario in our life up, but then all of a sudden it just kind of crumbles and goes the wrong direction. I didn't want my mother to have breast cancer, but... That's what happened. I didn't want to really at the time stay in College Station, but I felt like the Lord was calling me to be here. Some of you might have those things. And you realize in our lives, we set up these expectations, but when the reality hits, sometimes it just causes us to crumble. And this is a thing that I believe unites all mankind, not just believers and non-believers. This unites all of us. We set up these expectations and they just kind of pitter out sometimes. A great example of this is... Pokemon Go, right? For those of you who are probably rolling your eyes like, this is dumb, forget about it. I'm a kid of the night. Like, Pokemon was my life back in the day. I remember the exact moment when my mom bought me a Pokemon Blue version, and I put it in my see-through purple Game Boy color. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. That was the coolest one, right? And the reality was, man, I wish that there would be some point in the future where I could go into my world and actually catch Pokemon. And guess what? A couple weeks ago, Pokemon Go came out. And we hear the hype about it. And we're so excited. And so our expectations is we will do what that song says. Man, I will travel across the land, searching far and wide to teach Pokemon to understand the power that's inside. But reality hits. And you find yourself walking around in weird places that supposedly there's a Pokemon. And you might find yourself in a bathroom. I'm hoping that's a men's bathroom, but by the look on his face, it might not be, right? 
Um, the reality is that Pokemon Go isn't as great as I wanted it to be. Um, and I become frustrated with it, and I delete the app, and then I get bored. I kind of want to give it another try, and so I load it up again. Um, but on a more serious note, um, I think we see that all the time in our lives. It's not that we just become frustrated. We also can become anxious when things aren't continually working out the way that we wanted it to do. And then that anxiousness turns into loneliness and it can can turn into depression. And I think we see this in the American dream. We live in such an individualistic culture where the American dream is like, you got to be somebody and there's this bar that we're setting up and you got to get that house and you got to get that white picket fence and you got to get that. For some reason, we have 2.5 kids, right? How's a 0.5 kid work? I don't know, right? But we have that dream that we need to achieve. I think it's a waste because over and over and over again, we try to hit that stand. We had to tri- hit that milestone. We try to succeed here, but we fail because our expectations aren't met. I've heard it said that we are a nation of invent- inventors. We've invented Coca-Cola, the microwave, and depression. Now, I'm not saying that we as Americans are the inventors of depression, but we set our standards so high. We set our standards that you have to achieve this, and if you don't, you're a nobody And guess what? I haven't achieved what I thought culture wanted me to achieve. Does that make me a nobody? No, I I don't think so. And I I think what we see time and time again is our frustration when we set this expectation, when society sets this expectation for us to hit, and we're saying, yeah, I need to get that, and we don't get it. Instead of kind of wrestling with it, we just fall out, and we leave everything behind. The crazy thing is, is this makes sense to me for those who don't have hope, right? If you don't have hope, then you're running to things that will hope will satisfy you, okay? So maybe it's a job, relationship, material goods. As a Christian, I'm like, no, my hope is found in Christ, but it's strange to me that I still ask these questions. I'm still asking the same questions of those who don't have hope. I'm still asking, wait, I'm, I'm a Christian. Aren't I supposed to be joyful in this time? But I'm not. Wait, I'm a Christian, but I'm fearful and I'm anxious that my future won't pan out the way that I want it to be. Aren't I free from that fear? Hasn't Christ set me free? But I'm a, I'm a Christian, and am I not supposed to be experiencing God's blessings? Right now, I'm just kind of bummed out and depressed. I would like to answer yes to all three of those questions. Within Christ, we have the abundance of joy. In Christ, we are set free from our fears and anxiety. And in Christ, we are giving every spiritual blessing, right? But the problem is, yes, we've been given it, but we are so blinded and we forget God's goodness. We forget God's goodness and his blessings that when you wake up and do this, that is more than you deserve. But we forget that because we think we need a bunch of other things. And so, uh, you know, we go through this life and we're we're depressed and we're sad sometimes. And I'm going to tell you like this, I don't want to stand up here and be this happy-go-lucky guy because there's been moments in my life where I've wrestled with God. And if you have wrestled with God and are just struggling in your faith, I want to tell you that Scripture addresses that. Scripture doesn't ignore that. And we're going to see in the life of Elijah how that happens. I love this story. I'm glad, I'm so thankful that the Lord put this chapter in the Bible because when I am running, when I am desperate in need of knowing, hey, struggling with the Lord's goodness is something that is biblical, it gives me courage and gives me confidence because I know, I feel, this might be selfish, but the Lord wrote this section 
because he knew one day I needed to turn to it. And so if you would, if you turn your Bibles um, to 1 Kings, that's what we're going to be looking at today in the life of Elijah, 1 Kings chapter 19. Um, Before we get there, we're going to do a little crash course in the story of Elijah. So one theologian said this, like a meteor, he flashed across the inky blackness of Israel's spiritual night. Like a meteor, a bright light shining across the darkness. Um, If you don't know, in this time in history, Israel has been split into two kingdoms. You have the southern kingdom, who's kind of like off and on, they're doing good things, they're following the Lord, and then they're not following the Lord, and then they are following, so like wishy-washy. But then you have the northern kingdom, who's just awful, right? They are bowing down to different gods, idols, they're worshiping things, they're rejecting the God that rescued them from Egypt. And there's one king in particular, King Ahab, that was the worst of the worst. And when the worst of the worst steps into the world, when the world seems completely dark, when everyone is not following God as they should be following, when everyone is not in love with the Savior, we have a bright light that steps in, and that's Elijah. So I I want you guys to buckle up because we're going to explode through this, kind of some context of where we're coming from with Elijah. So Elijah is a Tishbite from Tishbe, right? You've probably never heard of where Tishbe is. No one knows where it is. If you look on a map, they're like, uh, there, right? Um, So he comes from a backwoods community, right? This guy comes from a backwoods community and he steps into the king's throne room. Right? Imagine that. This nobody steps into the king of the northern nation and says, hey, guess what, King Ahab? There's going to be no rain unless I say so. Baal, that God that you worship, who's supposed to be over rain, yeah, he's not real. My God is real, and there's not going to be any rain unless I say so. And then he pieces out, and he leaves. Right? That's nuts. And so God takes him from that moment, and he puts him in the brook Cherith. It's like his boot camp. He's in the wilderness and all he has provided for him is this stream of water and ravens bringing him food in the morning and in the evening, right? And so this is a moment where God is training him to be, you need to be fully dependent on me, Elijah, because what you're about to experience is going to blow your mind. And after he leaves the brook, God takes him to Zarephath. Zarephath is the nation or the section of the world where the king's wife Jezebel is from. And Jezebel Whoa, she's a crazy lady, right? Um, Jezebel is this woman who said, you know what, Ahab? Yeah, I kind of love you, but I want power. So we're gonna bring my nation's religion, my nation's practices into the promised land. And that's who we're gonna worship, not the God most high, right? And so they're doing children's sacrifices. They're having cult prostitution. They're doing insane things that would make God just angry, and Elijah steps into that area. He steps into that area and meets a widow, interacts with someone who culturally is like, why would you interact with that person? But inner engages with this widow, not only to talk to her, but to provide food for her, but also to raise her son from the dead, right? So Elijah raises this widow's son from the dead. After that, he's removed, goes back to King Ahab. He goes, all right, Ahab, it's time. It's time to bring that rain. But first, we're gonna put your God to the test. So he goes, you give me some of your prophets, Versus my God, and we'll see what happens. So Ahab's like, all right, bro, game on. Takes 450 of his prophets, goes to the mountaintop. They build an altar. They're worshiping Baal. They're praising. They're screaming. They're beating themselves, and nothing happens. And so they're praising, and they're doing it again. Maybe we should scream louder. Maybe we should wail. Maybe we should cry. And they're trying to bring the rain, and Elijah's just kicking back, just laughing at him because it's ridiculous. 
because they're worshiping something that's not real. And Elijah goes, all right, it's my turn. He sets up an altar of stone, altar of wood, puts a moat around the altar, fills it up with water, puts water all over wood, all over rock, butchers a bull by himself. Okay, a bull by himself. Like cuts it up, puts it on there. No one's helping him. And then he prays and boom, fire comes down from heaven and saps it all up, right? And so we're not talking about like kumbaya campfire fire, right? We're talking about like Armageddon Ben Affleck's crying fire, right? Ah, right? And it explodes everything and it saps everything up. This is some X-Men stuff right here, but it's real, not fake. Um, and so all the people are sitting there going, okay, right? Um, they fall on their feet, they worship God. And then Elijah goes, yeah, that's right. And so those prophets of Baal, you need to kill them, get them out of here. So they kill the prophets of Baal. And then Elijah falls on his face and he prays to God seven times. And then God brings the rain that he's promised three years ago. And he goes, all right, Ahab, now that you've seen this, I want you to go back to the city of Jezreel, your kingdom, and I want you to hold a banquet to praise God and bring the nation of Israel back to revival. So, you know, Ahab gets in his chariot, starts going, and the scripture says, this is how I interpret it, it could be wrong, but he says, the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garments, and he ran before Ahab to the entrance. So this boy is chopping to get back to Jezreel. He's outrunning the chariots, okay? That's fast, all right? And so we have this guy who has seen God move in incredible ways. We have this guy that has been filled with God's power that brings fire down from heaven, that heals the sun when he needs to heal them, that prays and brings the rain. And he steps into the kingdom where Ahab and Jezebel is. And he's excited to see the revival happen. But instead of seeing people come to him and saying, your God is God, he gets a messenger from Jezebel, the wicked queen that says, hey, Elijah, I heard about what you did with my prophets I don't like that. Um, So what you did to them yesterday, I'm going to do to you tomorrow. So get packing. And I wish we could read the scripture and Elijah stood up and says, forget you woman. Like I know who you are. My God is greater than you, right? I'm not scared of you. But what's crazy to me is that Elijah says in verse three, chapter 19, then he was afraid and he rose and ran for his life. What? What? We have just been to the mountaintop with Elijah, literally Mount Carmel up there seeing fire come down from heaven. God do incredible things. And then he stands in front of a woman that says, hey, I'm gonna put you to death by myself. And he freaks out and fears for his life. And he not only fears for his life, he runs away so far out of the way that no one can catch him. And then he leaves his servant and then he wanders in the wilderness all by himself. What a drastic change of events. And it makes you ask the question, why? Well, I believe that Elijah, in a time that seems so inconsistent with what he thought God's plan was, needed help. I believe that Elijah is a man of belief, but he needed help in his belief. You see, the point that I want to make today is that, yes, we can claim to be believers in Jesus Christ, but there are moments in our lives that we wrestle and we struggle with our belief. And there's moments where we sit there and say, I believe, but man, I need help in this. You see, Elijah was a man of God, no doubt. Like we, we read that his name literally means the Lord is God. Lord, all capital letters, probably means Yahweh, the covenant God is God. His name literally means I am is God, right? 
That's what his name means. So he is a man who is worshiping God. He is a man who is obedient to God. He has seen incredible things happen in his life, right? He has seen people raised from the dead. He has had birds feed him food. It's kind of weird, but he's seen it, right? It's happened to him. But Elijah's belief in God, I believe, went as far as his immediate experience. Whatever was happening around him was able to strengthen his faith. But when he stepped out of that and something confronted him, when life turned a little bit sour, he forgot about those experiences. And we do the same. I'm a camp guy, and so camp high is something that I know fairly well. Um, If you've ever been to a retreat, if you've ever been to camp, if you've gone to impact, if you've worked at a summer camp, man, kids, yourself, they're fired up for the Lord when they come out there. And they see God move incredible ways. Man, they're leaving all their cell phones behind. They're going to recommit their life to Jesus. Like, I will never do this ever again, right? And they're crying, cry night. You're singing like all these worship songs. Everyone's emotional and like snot's coming out of their nose. It's wonderful. Cry night. But then we come back here or we come back home And life hits us and we forget the God that we experienced. We think that the God that we experienced in that retreat and that camp is different from the God that's with us right now. And I think that's what Elijah was going through. You see, he had a lapse in his belief. He forgot who the God that he served was and what that caused him to do was to run away in fear, but not just run away in fear, but run so far to isolate himself to where he wished to die. He sat in the desert under a tree that could only hold one person under it and said, God, I wish I were dead. This is Elijah moments ago that said, God, bring down fire from heaven. Boom, and it happened. But now he's sitting under a tree crying, wishing that he was dead. See, his expectation or his belief didn't go as far as his experience went. I think for most of us, we've probably experienced this too. I know that I confess that I have, right? But I want to encourage you this morning that you're not alone in this struggle. You're not alone in forgetting God's goodness when things go bad. I think a lot of times us as Christians, we want to stand up here on this stage or we want to stand in front of people and we want to present something that's neatly wrapped in a bow tie of it and kumbaya and God's good and we're all right and it's okay. How you doing this morning, brother? I'm doing fine. How are you doing? Um, But the reality is we struggle a lot and we just don't tell people about it because we want to keep this veneer in front of us. I think it's very taboo in the evangelical world to be honest with what we're going through. You see, what I used to do back in the day is when people would come to me and they're like, man, I'm really struggling in my faith. Man, I'm really doubting God's goodness. I'd be like, you know what, brother? You need to pray more. Maybe your praying ain't good enough. You know what, brother? You need to get into the word and you need to write it all over your body and you need to memorize all these scriptures. You know what, brother? You need to quit sinning and get going, right? I think those are good, good solutions, you know, If we don't believe in God's goodness, if we're not understanding who God is, we need to spend time speaking with him and being with him. If we don't know God's goodness and we haven't had it revealed to us, he's written a love letter to us, so it's time to get into scripture and see who God is and what he's done and what he will continue to do. And maybe there is sin in your life that you need to cut out and that you need to ask God to remove But I would encourage us that wouldn't be the first steps because when you are broken and when you are upset, you don't need someone to come to you and give you a to-do list. You need someone to come and cry with you. 
You need someone to put their arm around you. You need someone to go, yeah, this stinks. I'm sorry about that. I'm here for you. You see, Paul addressed this in Ephesians 4.15. I think we respond this way. He says, speak the truth. Man, I'm good at that. If you've got a problem, man, I'm going to speak the truth in you. I'm, I'm a blunt person, and so I don't really care about people's feelings that much sometimes, <laughs> um, which is my fault. But we neglect to read the rest of that part in Ephesians 4.15 that says, speak the truth in love. We also neglect to say what Romans 12.15 says, to weep for those who weep to mourn for those who mourn, to come alongside your brother, your sister, those who aren't even in the faith and come alongside them and weep and mourn with them. I think we neglect to do that. I know that I do. Um, The Lord so graciously blessed me with a fiance who is incredibly gifted at having empathy. She will hurt when people hurt. She will cry when people cry. And she will feel what people feel. And I don't really get that. <laughs> um, but I am so thankful that the Lord brought me someone that does that. That I can see, oh, this is how I'm supposed to respond. I'm not supposed to be this jerk that's negative and just, maybe I'm saying the right thing, but I'm not saying it in the right way. You see, it takes an intimate relationship, a, a union, a community to come around you, to uplift you. It takes a comforter of the soul to bring you back. And that's what Elijah finds in God when he goes to Mount Horeb. Read with me, um, chapter 19, verse nine. Elijah's on his way to Mount Horeb. He's, he arrived at the cave and he says this, there Elijah came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And God said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he repeats, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord says, go, return to your way to the wilderness of Damascus. Right? In the moments where he is doubting his faith, where he is doubting the belief in God, what does he do? He runs to Mount Horeb. And for those of you that don't know, Mount Horeb is also named for Mount Sinai. What Mount Sinai is, is the holy mountain of God, where Israel met and encountered the covenantal love of God. And so in his deepest, darkest depression, Elijah runs to God. It doesn't make sense to him, because you can see in his pity party responses, I'm the only one left. I've been doing all these things. All the people are dead except me. I'm the only one that's following you, God. It's me, 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 me. Why is this happening to me? What am I doing here? I want us to look how God responds to Elijah in this moment. He doesn't respond how you think he would respond, right? He responds in a whisper. I don't know if you've ever had someone whisper to you, but that whispering is an intimate conversation between you and that person. No one else hears it. 
It speaks deeply to your soul when someone whispers sweet nothings into your ear. Whenever I'm stressed, whenever I'm going through something hard, Michelle will come to me and she doesn't have to say that much. She just has to put her arm around me and whisper, hey, I love you. And that shatters my world. It breaks me up from the things that are just hurting me because it's only meant for me to hear, right? No one else needs to hear it. So God comes to Elijah and he whispers to him. Has God ever done that to you? I'm not saying that God is speaking in big audible voices that you can hear, but has God ever spoken to you in such a way where the spirit is just moving within you, convicting you and comforting you at the same time? He did that to me a couple of weeks ago. We, went, we took our kids to Houston for a, a, a mission trip. Um, and we did, the upper high school um, took this trip called Elijah Rising. And it is an or, Elijah Rising is an, an organization that um, is a nonprofit group that works within the human trafficking ring of Houston. And so we went on an hour bus tour driving around Houston, hearing statistics about sex trafficking, looking at buildings where women are being trafficked and abused. And then we got off the bus and we went into this museum where we learned more about sex trafficking and the darkness of the world. And I, can I tell you, brothers and sisters, that my heart was broken. Because in a moment where all this junk was coming on top of me, in a moment where God was revealing the darkness, he also said, hey, Lucas, I know that you're hurting right now and I know that you're angry. And he convicted me this way. He says, but you're no better than those men that do those things. But I still love you and I still love those men. And it broke me. It was a state of conviction but also a state of comfort because I was reminded of God's goodness. And I believe that's what God responds to Elijah in this way. He sees Elijah broken and in need of restoration and he doesn't condemn them. He's not like a coach that comes out to you and tells you what you did wrong, right? That's why I quit playing sports because every time I like missed a ball, my coach would come and ream me that like, you missed the ball, Lucas. I was like, I freaking know I missed the ball, right? You don't have to tell me, right? It's right there. It's not my glove, right? I don't need that. What I could have used is the coach saying, hey, it's all right, man. Next time, put your glove up maybe this way, like not in your face, right? Um, That's what I could have used. And that's what God does. He doesn't respond harshly to Elijah. He responds differently. He's patient with Elijah. Elijah has this five-year-old pit party where he like hides in the cave and he's like, everyone's against me, God, and I'm the only one, God, and blah, blah, blah. And God could have been like, all right, Elijah, right? No, but he simply asks him a sweet question of, hey, what are you doing here? Like, what's up? What's happening? What are you doing here? I used to read that as a condemning phrase, but after I've known a little bit more about who God is and how he relates with people, I see it more as a comforting question of like, hey, hey, buddy, what are, you, what are you doing here? Right? He's patient with Elijah. He reminds Elijah of his power. So after he's patient and Elijah has this pity party, God goes, hey, I want you to come out. Come out to me. Stop being in that cave. Come to me. And he wrecks the mountains with an earthquake. He brings down fire. That fire probably is the same one that Elijah saw a couple of verses ago, reminding Elijah, hey, I'm still the God who has all the power right now. You can trust in me. He also has an intimate conversation where he doesn't want him to hide in the corner and he doesn't want to scold him. He says, come out on the mountain, come, come to me. 
and he whispers something to him. And we don't really know what he whispers and we don't know what Elijah hears because it wasn't meant for us to know. It was solely meant for Elijah to listen to. Sometimes there's things that the Lord's telling you and and moving you to. No one else needs to know that. Just you need to know. And he also does this. He gives him a purpose and a people. You see, he tells him something that we don't know. And then he says, hey, what are you doing here, Elijah? And then Elijah does his pity party yet again. He says the exact same thing twice. You think he would learn. Instead of God getting frustrated, he says, guess what? I'm not done with you yet, Elijah. I'm building up and I'm saving a people for you to minister to. And I'm giving you a friend named Elisha that's going to come and help you out. And I'm also giving you a purpose that this is what you're going to do to set up my glory and my dominance inside the promised land. So he's patient with Elijah. He reminds Elijah of his power. He has an intimate, personal conversation with him and he gives him purpose and a people to go to because that's, in all honesty, that's what I need when I'm struggling with God's goodness. Because I don't need you to give me a list of things to do. I need you to come to me and say, hey, be patient with me. Think us as believers and us wrestling and struggling. What is this relationship thing with God? How do I see God as good, but I see all this stuff happening? I think we need our brothers and sisters to come around and not just drill us with truth and drill us with facts, but I think we need our brothers and sisters to come around and be patient with us. I think we need our brothers and sisters to come around and remind us of God's power, that in the darkness, light is breaking through. I think we need our brothers and sisters to come around and have those small conversations to treat us like human beings and have those conversations with us. And I think we need a reminder from our brothers and sisters that we have a purpose as an adopted child of the Most High and that there are people around us that are with us. I love Elijah in this moment because God lifts him up and sends him out. He has his pity party for a little bit. It's okay to have a pity party sometimes with the Lord. Be honest with the Lord. I think we're not honest enough. I know that I'm not. But we see even in the lowest of lows, where does Elijah run to? He runs to Mount Sinai, to the holy mountain of God, because he knows for a, maybe he's around me right now, but I know God will be at Mount Sinai. I know he'll be there. And he runs to his father. He believes, but he needs help in his beliefs. We see the same type of interaction happen with Jesus, right? So we're going to flip over to Mark. And Jesus confronts a man who believes but is in need of help in his belief. Mark chapter 9, Jesus confronts this man who's pleading and needs help because his son has been possessed by a demon, by a spirit, ever since he was a child. And he runs up to Jesus. And in verse 21, Jesus steps into it and he asks the father, how long has this been happening to you? And he said, from childhood, and has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And immediately, Jesus looked at him and said, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I love that phrase. I believe, but help me 
in my unbelief. You see, this was a man who has been raising his child that has been possessed by a demon ever since his young childhood. So this man would walk outside his door with his kid, hoping maybe to go play a game with him, but it couldn't happen because he would be cast into the fire or cast into the water because the spirit had a hold on him. And he would look across around his neighborhood and see other fathers with their children being normal. And he goes, why God is this happening to me? And in a moment where he sees Jesus, he's heard about Jesus, about him healing. He's heard that he is a great teacher. He believes he's a great teacher. He believes that he can heal, but he steps into this moment. He says, this is what's wrong with my child. If you can do it, have compassion on me. You see, I don't know if he doubts Jesus's ability, but what I think is that he's lived such a long time in a life where things weren't going the way that he wanted it to go. He just had not that much faith to believe that it could be changed. Maybe this is the way life is supposed to be. And so he steps up to Jesus and he says, if you can have compassion on me, heal my son. And Jesus has compassion, steps in and heals him. And the man says, I believe, but I need help in my belief. I believe, but I need some help. You see, Jesus, the son of God, fully God and fully man, came into this world to bring restoration. So this is yet another moment where Jesus steps into the brokenness and he sees the darkness. And with compassion, he steps in and lends a hand and picks up the son. We read in verse 26, Um, And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, the demon came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. That's the gospel. Jesus taking a dead child by the hand and reuniting us with our father. That's the same story that we see with Elijah, where Elijah is at the pit of despair. He's complaining, he's broken, he's depressed, and God lays his hand on him, restores him, and gives him a purpose. It's the same with us, that when we are broken, when we are beaten down, God sent his son for us who extends the hand. And when we believe, we grasp onto it and it reunites us with our father. It's a beautiful imagery there. That when we are down in our darkest moments, when we think this is what I expected to happen, God, why could you do this? We forget God's goodness, that he extends the hand. He goes, no, no, I'm still good. I'm here. Come out to me. Talk to me. What are you doing here? Why are you throwing your life away? Jesus came to be a minister and comfort those who needed comfort. And the thing is, brothers and sisters, is that if if you are a believer, you have been given everything that you need for life and godliness. We just need help believing it. We've been given everything that we need for life and godliness, but sometimes we just need help believing it. And so what I urge you to do is run to God. If you are even at the pit of not knowing what's going on in life, be like Elijah and go to the God that he knows is there. Maybe he doesn't think he's good in this moment, but he still runs to him. And I would call us as the community of believers that we need to be a people who are okay with being vulnerable. Elijah was vulnerable with God. He threw a pity party, which we kind of give him a bad rap for. But I think we need to take some lessons from Elijah and learn how to be vulnerable. And even when things are just crazy, just to tell people, if someone asks you, hey, how are you doing today? Don't put a smile and be like, I'm doing great. Just be like, man, brother, I am, I'm hurting right now. 
This whole God is good thing, I just, I don't, I don't know. Let's open up to our brothers and sisters. Let's be vulnerable because vulnerability produces vulnerability. And so what's the purpose? What's the response that we have? As the band's making their way up, I, I just want to encourage us. The life of a believer being a Christian is not a happy-go-lucky, yeah, this is all great. It is a roller coaster. And I'm not just making this up because we see men and men and women after women in the pages of Scripture who fully trust in the Lord, but they hit rock bottom. And I praise God for him putting those moments in Scripture so that when I hit rock bottom, I know that I'm not alone. So I pray for you guys. Let's be a community that is vulnerable. Let's be a community that loves well. Let's be a community that weeps with those who weeps and mourns with those who mourn. If you're not a believer in Jesus, if you're here today and this is kind of striking you odd, uh, my prayer for you is that the Spirit would be moving and opening your hearts and minds to his calling. And if you would like to know more about Jesus and who he is, I'm going to be standing in the back and I would love to talk to you. I'd love to talk to you. If you're a believer, man, I call you to be open and honest with your, with your God. Maybe there's some things that he's been convicting you of. Maybe there's some things that you need to let him know. The crazy thing is God already knows what you're thinking and feeling. We need to present it to him, right? We need to bring it into the light. Maybe you need to confess some things or open it up or be vulnerable with your accountability group. Instead of sitting over coffee at Starbucks, just smiling, going, yeah, everything's okay. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we need to be, man, this stinks right now. I'm wrestling with this. And as we transition into worship through song, I would ask you to take a moment to be honest before the Lord. And maybe there's people that you just need to talk to. Maybe they're in this room and you can go step out over there and talk to them and go step outside. Or maybe there's someone you need to text. This is like the moment where I give you the opportunity to pull out your phone and like text people, right? Um, if the Spirit is leading you to do that, I promise it's going to be worth it. Don't let this be a moment where you're not answering what God has for you. We are a people of belief who struggle with belief. Let us confess that today and cling closely to the grace of God that meets us where we are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so overwhelmed by who you are. And Father, I confess that I alone also forget that you are good. When I want it my way, it doesn't work out, and so I blame you. But really, I'm just not open and understanding the blessings and the plan that you have for me. And there are some brothers and sisters in this room that I know that are struggling with that as well. So I pray that you would softly comfort them like you did with Elijah. Not give them a scolding. It's not what they need. They need your comfort that you so willingly and graciously give. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for sending the one that lends out the hand that pulls us out of the darkness. We love you. We trust you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.